Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to Capital Power's fourth quarter 2021 results conference call. As a reminder, all participants are in a listen-only mode and the conference call is being recorded today, February 24th, 2022. I will now turn the call over to Mr. Randy Ma, the Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Good morning and thank you for joining us today to review Capital Power's fourth quarter and year-end 2021 results, which we released earlier this morning. Our 2021 integrated annual report and the presentation for this conference call are posted on our website at capitalpower.com. Joining me this morning are Brian Vaggio, President and CEO, and Sandra Haskins, Senior Vice President, Finance and CFO. We'll start with opening comments and then open the line to take your questions. Before we start, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements about future events made on this call are forward-looking in nature and are based on certain assumptions and analysis made by the company. Actual results could differ materially from the company's expectations due to various risks and uncertainties associated with our business. Please refer to the cautionary statement on forward-looking information on slide two. In today's discussion, we will be referring to various non-GAAP financial measures and ratios as noted on slide three. These measures are not defined financial measures according to GAAP and do not have standardized meanings prescribed by GAAP and therefore are unlikely to be comparable to similar measures used by other enterprises. These measures are provided to complement the gap measures which are provided in the analysis of the company's results from management's perspective. Reconciliations of these non-gap financial measures to their nearest gap measures are disclosed in our 2021 integrated annual report. I will now turn the call over to Brian for his remarks starting on slide four. Thanks, Randy, and good morning. Capital Power's head office in Edmonton is located within the traditional and contemporary home of many Indigenous peoples of the Treaty 6 region and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4. We acknowledge the diverse Indigenous communities that are located in these areas and whose presence continues to enrich the community and our lives as we continue to learn more about the Indigenous history of the lands on which we live and work. 2021 was an excellent year in advancing our strategy and commitment to being off coal in 2023, where we saw strong progress from strategic, sustainability, and financial perspectives. At a high level, we escalated our renewables and storage footprint. We had success on long-term contracting of our renewable projects. And we made progress in repositioning Genesee 1 and 2 to be the most efficient combined cycle units in Alberta once the repowering project is completed. Sustainability continues to be integral to our business, where we have incorporated broad compensation that is linked to our ESG targets. We have also advanced our decarbonization strategy through strategic partnerships, such as collaborating with Enbridge on a CCUS project. Sandra will provide more details on our financial highlights. These highlights include delivering record financial performance and maintaining a strong balance sheet and access to capital to fund our growth. We have also significantly managed down several short-term and medium-term risks to capital power. And based on the stability of our cash flows, we have extended our annual dividend guidance to 2025. On slide five is a list of strategic highlights and accomplishments for 2021. We've enhanced the Genesee one and two repowering project with the integration of a 210 megawatt battery energy storage system, the largest in Canada. Once repositioned, Genesee one and two will have the dominant baseload position in the Alberta power market. We executed a six year tolling tolling agreement extension for Arlington Valley that reaffirms our strategy of investing in strategically positioned natural gas assets. We completed the combustion turbine upgrade at Decatur that increases our contracted capacity and efficiency 
which enhanced economics consistent with the contract extension we executed in 2020. Whitlaw became the largest wind facility in Alberta at 353 megawatts when phases two and three were completed ahead of schedule in early December and below budget. We executed 15-year renewable contracts with both Labatt's breweries and Dow Chemical to help them reach their sustainability goals through customized renewable energy solutions. And demand for renewable contracts for us continues to be very positive. Growth in our Alberta renewable assets continues with our latest project, Helkert 2, a 150-megawatt wind farm that is adjacent to our existing Helkert wind facility in central Alberta. Lastly, we expanded our solar and storage development pipeline with the acquisition of a portfolio of solar sites with battery potential in the United States, providing us with a platform for significant renewable growth. Overall, these strategic advances support growth and our roadmap to decarbonization. Turning to slide six, this chart shows our growth in renewables from 2016 to 2024. Based on current growth projects, we have achieved a compound annual growth rate of 18%. As the chart illustrates, we've delivered constant annual growth where, where new contracted renewable projects are added every year, except for 2023, when the original completion dates for the North Carolina projects have been delayed to 2024 due to the delays in the interconnection process. We are hoping to have at least one additional renewable project to be announced this year. Moving to slide seven, we are committed to be carbon neutral by 2050 and have a clear pathway that includes setting targets along the, that pathway. We've compensation elements for executives and capital power leaders that are directly linked to ESG targets. These include targets on diversity, a 30% carbon reduction by 2024, and employee well-being. In 2021, we achieved our sustainability targets to develop company-wide water management and sustainability sourcing strategies that are designed around ESG principles to positively contribute to society and ensuring our environment can thrive over the long term. We are moving to implement these strategies in 2022. Our Genesee 1 and 2 repowering project continues to be on track, supporting our commitment to be off coal in 2023. We've also incorporated sustainability into our financing by transitioning existing credit facilities to sustainability-linked credit facilities that are tied to emission intensity targets. We're advancing our Genesee 1 and 2 CCS project by collaborating with Hembridge that I'll uh, elaborate on shortly. Through our achievements in 2021, we've increased our velocity to meet our sustainability targets and positions the company to deliver long-term value for our stakeholders and the environment. Turning to slide eight, we have made substantial progress on the advancement of CCUS. The CO2 hub development process is moving forward in Alberta, with the Enbridge project fitting our needs very well. We're in the process of finalizing our pre-feed study aimed at solidifying project definition, technology licensing, scoping, preliminary engineering deliverables, and costing details. We're optimistic that sufficient financial support for the $1.8 to $2 billion carbon capture project will come from both federal and provincial governments. We're in discussions with the Canadian Infrastructure Bank on the framework for financing. We also expect First Nations participation as well as other potential partnerships for the project. One of the key issues for this project to proceed is de-risking carbon policy. There's a general appreciation by governments that long-term policy uncertainty presents unique risks to investments in CCS. Our discussions with governments has focused on potential mechanisms and approaches to mitigate adverse impacts in the event of carbon policy-related changes. The final investment decision is now expected in mid-2023 and is subject to satisfactory hub progress, government support, and policy risk mitigation. 
I'll now, now turn the call over to Sandra. Thanks, Brian. On slide nine, I'll touch on the financial highlights for 2021. As mentioned, we set an annual record for both adjusted EBITDA and AFSO in 2021, and our financial performance in 2022 is expected to be equivalent. We delivered on our eighth consecutive annual dividend increase and extended the annual dividend guidance of 5% to 2025 based on the support of predictable cash flows. In 2021, Capital Power delivered a total shareholder return of 19%, which is consistent with the five-year average and exceeding our target TSR of 10 to 12% over the long term. We have been de-risking our cash flows by securing low-cost carbon offsets, increasing commodity hedging, and executing on longer-term contracts to manage medium-term risk. In June of last year, we completed a successful $288 million equity offering to pre-fund our existing growth CapEx. We have just renewed our NCIB program for another year that provides a capital allocation option during periods of limited growth and when the shares are undervalued. We have also extended our debt maturity profile and reduced refinancing risk. Our investment-grade credit rating remains a top priority, and the strength of our balance sheet and resilient cash flow secures our credit rating. FFO to debt in 2021 is 23%, compared to S&P's target of 17%. Overall, we are well-positioned to finance our growth capex using internally generated cash flow. Slide 10 shows year-over-year financial performance for the fourth quarter and for the full year 2021. We delivered year-over-year increases on all key financial metrics, both in the fourth quarter and for the full year. This includes generating revenues and other income of $1.99 billion in 2021 compared to $1.937 billion in 2020. Both adjusted EBITDA and AFFO exceeded the midpoints of our higher revised guidance. Adjusted EBITDA was $1.124 billion, an 18% increase compared to $955 million in 2020. And AFFO was $605 million in 2021, a 16% increase compared to $522 million in 2020. The positive factors that led to record performance in the year include strong performance from the Alberta commercial segment due to high Alberta power prices that averaged $102 per megawatt hour in the year. Whitla 2 began commercial operations a month earlier than scheduled in 2021, and we received full-year contributions from the additions in 2020 of Buckthorn Wind and Cardinal Point. We accelerated the recognition of coal compensation with the Genesee 1 and 2 repowering project where we expect to be off coal by the end of 2023, six years earlier than required. We also had lower net finance expense of $23 million, largely a result of lower interest due to decreased loans and borrowings outstanding. Offsetting the positive factors were a weaker U.S. dollar, lower wind resources at most of our wind facilities, and higher current tax expense, with 2021 being our first cash taxable year in Canada. Turning to slide 11, I'll provide a status update on the recontracting of our island generation facilities. Island generation has provided reliable power to Vancouver Island in the lower mainland of BC for almost 20 years. Although the facility runs infrequently, it is there and available when needed to provide reliable generation. When BC Hydro faced significant challenges in 2019 and 2021, Island Generation offered at high capacity factors and helped to keep the lights on. Recall that in September of 2021, BC Hydro indicated to BCUC that it needed the Island Generation facility to operate during transmission repairs. In December 2021, BC Hydro released its final IRP where it affirmed its view that the long-term EPA for island generation is not required. Based on these developments and an assumption of a four-year contract extension, a $52 million impairment was recorded in the fourth quarter. We continue to expect the need for island generation beyond four years and are aggressively intervening in the BCUC IRP process. Moving to slide 12, I'll touch on the Alberta power market and our hedge positions. 
In 2021, we saw a full recovery in power demand from the COVID-related and oil, low oil price load decreases in 2020. In fact, the Alberta market saw new record summer and winter peak demands. Despite not fully reopening, load remains strong today and is expected to increase model, modestly year over year. With the expiry of the balancing pool PPAs at the end of 2020, we saw a robust power market in 2021 with an average power price of $102 per megawatt hour compared to $47 per megawatt hour in 2020. The slide shows our hedge positions for power and natural gas. You will note that we have increased our hedge positions for 2022 to 2024 since our disclosure at Investor Day on December 2nd. For 2022, we entered the year 72% hedged in the high $60 per megawatt hour range. In 2023, we are 47% hedged in the low $60 range. And for 2024, we are 32% hedged in the high $50 range. This compares to forward prices of $94, $72 and $61 per megawatt for 2022 to 2024 respectively. The hedge position includes longer-term origination contracts as another mechanism to manage price risk and volatility. The contracts capture a lower price relative to the forwards in 2022, but reduce price risk in future years when we see prices moving down. For example, in 2022, we are 72% hedged in total and more than 40% hedged with contracts that are greater than one year in term many of which are three to five years or longer in duration. The long-term hedges have an average price in the low $60 per megawatt hour range, which reflects longer term forwards, whereas the balance of the hedge contracts are at an average price that is more in line with 2022 forwards. In 2023 and 2024, the hedges currently in price are predominantly longer term contracts. Natural gas prices have an increasing impact on our financial results as we transition off coal. We have been actively hedging our expected natural gas burn for the Alberta fleet at favorable prices relative to forwards. We have hedged 100% and 99% of our expected natural gas volumes in 2022 and 2023, and have hedged 85% of our expected natural gas volumes in 2024. The average hedge price for all three years is between $2 and $2.50 per gigajoule, which is much lower than forward gas prices as shown in the table. Turning to slide 13, I'll conclude our remarks by reviewing our 2022 targets and comment on the various sensitivities on these targets. As highlighted, 2021 was our strongest year for financial results and 2022 results will build on the strong momentum. For 2022, we are targeting 1.11 billion to 1.16 billion in adjusted EBITDA and 580 to 630 million in AFSO. We have looked at the impacts from rising inflation rates and have a modest unmitigated exposure on our operating results. For our growth projects, we are managing our construction exposure, which includes having over 84% of our procurement costs locked in for the Genesee repowering. Also, with the delayed COD of the North Carolina Solar Project to Q4 2024 and Halkirk 2 scheduled for late 2024, the timing will allow us to take advantage of more normal commodity and shipping costs. To manage the expectation of higher interest rates, we have fixed rate debt in place. We have also been actively hedging the underlying GOC rates for all financing into early 2026 in anticipation of increasing rates. Financing in 2022 is limited to the refinancing of preferred shares. 2022 will be a year with significant planned outages, including outages for Genesee 1 and 3. The sustaining CapEx is expected to be between 105 and 115 million, which is well above the forecast of 55 to 70 million in the next few years. Over 20, our 2022 targets also reflect our cash taxable position in Canada. We expect continued strong internally generated cash flow based on a strong Alberta price outlook. And finally, we continue to target 500 million per year of committed capital for growth. We expect 2022 to be another very strong year, both financially and strategically. I'll now call the turn.
turn the call back over to Randy. All right, thanks, Sandra. Sharice, we're ready to take questions. Thank you. <clears throat> we will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press a star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. The first question comes from Robert Hope with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, just a, maybe a longer-term strategic question. Just on the natural gas midlife generation side, you know, what are you seeing out there in terms of opportunities? And as you evaluate these opportunities, how does the ability to kind of reduce carbon at the sites or you know, co-locate renewables or batteries fit into the investment decision? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Uh, good afternoon. So in, in terms of what we're seeing on the uh, midlife natural gas assets uh, in, in terms of activity these days, it has uh, increased significantly over the last couple of months. So we're seeing a fair amount of traffic, not the same degree of traffic that we saw pre-pandemic, but definitely more than we've seen in the last couple of years. So that's, that's looking encouraging. Uh, when we actually are looking at a particular uh, proposal. Obviously, there's a contracting side comfort that, you know, for its economic life, it can be, you know, recontracted, you know, out into the future or has sufficient current long-term contract to, to carry us uh, well into, well into the, the 2030s. So, you know, that's a, that's sort of a first hurdle. Then we look at it in terms of, in part of, you know, our, our optimism around recontracting or lack thereof would depend on how it's strategically positioned. Um, we've been looking at, you know, a number of assets that are just, I'll call it simply generation assets and create energy, but those are readily displaced by renewables and would have a, a relatively shorter history. Those assets that are, you know, on the grid uh, in strategic locations or, you know, for example, you know, those facilities that are peaking facilities would tend to have the, the longest enduring value. The other thing because of their positioning is it's, it's a relatively straightforward transition to start including batteries on those sites and then eventually retiring the natural gas facilities and having you know, storage capability you know, realized at those sites. So there's a, a number of things that we look at and certainly the carbon outlook for each facility is looked at very, very closely and how it impacts on our targets and you know what, what we see is the long-term viability of, of that asset and that location. So each, each very much site uh, or project specific, but uh, yeah, we hit on uh, all of those points when we look at uh, the, uh, the uh, evaluation as to whether we even go forward in looking at an asset. I appreciate it, Geller. 
Um, very helpful. And then maybe moving over to the renewable side, in the prepared remarks, you mentioned that, you know, a number of the projects under development, um, you know, have enough kind of time left until they're commissioned to uh, miss some of the challenges we're seeing in the supply chains right now. Is this, for the next tranche of, of renewable projects, is this slowing down discussions with customers or is the backlog of counterparties willing to backstop EPA still quite strong? Well, it's caused, there is a bit of a pause right now, and it's a combination of things. One, of course, is, you know, what's happening um, with the Biden administration, you know, in, in the United States, and, um, you know, what's the outlook going to be for, you know, uh, various credits, uh, tax credits, et cetera. So that's creating, uh, I think, it's a significant slowdown in terms of, of elements being transacted, not necessarily you know, slowing down, you know, some of the discussions, but I think before you'll see an awful lot of triggers pulled, you know, there'll, there'll be a little bit more certainty, you know, come into the market. From a pricing perspective, you know, you can, you know, um, acquire or, you know, get commitments around price out, you know, two or three years, which are tending to be a little bit lower than, than current pricing or today's pricing. Um, we expect that that will soften, and as the, the market becomes clearer and clearer, um, I think you'll see, again, a, a tendency for, for there to be more contracting taking place. So I'd suggest there's a, a bit of a slowdown for a couple of months, but certainly by mid-year and thereafter, you'll see some uh, acceleration in, uh, in renewable opportunities in the U.S., in Canada, it's more on a province-by-province province basis um, in terms of, you know, what's being offered by the by the utilities or by the provinces in terms of uh, in terms of uh, renewable projects. In Alberta, continues to be the same. We see it as an excellent place to continue to invest, and we've been very successful on um, gaining contracts on our renewable projects. Even though, as we've said over and over, we're comfortable with them, and in a uh, merchant perspective. But, um, you know, the uh, contracting of, of even our remaining position uh, with the renewables yeah, at this point is very positive. So um, things things look very good from the renewable perspective. Appreciate the color. Thank you. The next question comes from Maurice Choi with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. Um, my first question, just to pick up on the discussion on CCS. Um, in addition to First Nations, what are you hoping other potential partners bring to the table? Um, and, and a follow-up to that, uh, on timing, what could lead to an FID coming in earlier than mid-2023? So, uh, in terms of what would we see in a partner, I mean, we would look firstly to a strategic partner, somebody who brings more to the table than simply capital. And, you know, you can see that from a technology perspective. You know, uh, Mitsubishi, for example, would be one, or, you know, there's a number of engineering firms who are very much committed to this line of, uh, of development and in fact, you know, uh, do have capital that, that they'd like to deploy. Um, there's also, um, you know, organizations who would be very interested in, you know, continuing down, um, you know, investments in, in CCS. Um, you know, Enbridge, for example, would be one, one, one organization. But there's other organizations uh, out there who are very interested in being part of, I'll call it part of the action. Um, and then, of course, there's financial players who would look at it as a, you know, a positive investment given what it's achieving. But again, you know, that they would not necessarily bring anything to the table other than capital. And I should be clear, we've had no discussions so far with anybody. Um, and that brings us maybe to, to your second question about, you know, timing and, and moving forward. We see as a major date, a uh, major milestone for us being, you know, when the uh, federal budget comes out and what it, what it has in terms of, you know, magnitude and parameters around the uh, investment tax credit. Um, everything we are, are understanding, and, and there's nothing set in stone or committed or anything, but, but it seems like that will be a, a positive outcome from our perspective. 
And that's when we'll start being, you know, uh, getting into more and more discussions around, you know, specific partnerships, et cetera. In terms of advancing the uh, the date in which we move forward on it, um, the, the major issue that, that um, we have right now is more around the, the hub process is not advancing as quickly as we had anticipated. You know, initially the expectation, and it was a broad expectation, is that you know there'd be uh, the government would be looking at a number of different hubs, sort of at the same time. And um, what's happened is that there's been an overwhelming response, and they anticipated uh, a very uh, much more significant of a response than they expected. You know, with with the first tranche, and so they've had to they they just don't have the capacity to analyze these at the same time. So they, they're, they're putting them in, a, in an order in which um, the, uh, the Enbridge project has not come forward yet for, for assessment or probably more appropriately put, you know, any of those uh, projects that are west of Edmonton have not been, you know, uh, been asked for by the government to, to be assessed. So that's slowed things down by, you know, a few months. We could see that move ahead you know, fairly quickly, uh, we believe the um, what the, the Enbridge is putting forth extremely straightforward, extremely clean, um, excellent, excellent project. Um, the other thing, though, that enters into the hub side of it is there are some fairly significant geological um, expenditures to be made, um, and you know it would be prudent that those expenditures take place. Once there's a greater degree of, of certainty um, in terms of processes going forward, so a lot of that work um, we see now probably being pushed into uh, into next year and, and and potentially being complete by mid-year next year. Now all of that could be advanced um, if there was a drive to, but as we see it, and, and there's still even you know we could um, even with the extension of the front end. It's possible to to you know be complete in 2026. It starts you know pushing off to be more like you know uh, reading reaching the uh, completion in, in uh, 2027. Having said that, that's well in advance of you know of, of achieving uh, of achieving you know provincial and federal targets in advance of 2030. So we actually have a lot of time at the back end. So. Don't don't want to do anything imprudent at at the front end or get you know get over our skis um, as we move forward. So pretty firm on what we need to be seeing and uh, things are lining up, uh, albeit with a slight delay uh, with those things coming to fruition. Thanks, and and that dovetails quite nicely into my next question about capital allocation. You obviously mentioned earlier that you are encouraged by the level of activity you see in the midlife gas generation market. Uh, you have this $2 billion project uh, uh, related to CCS, and you also mentioned that you may move forward with one more renewable project this year. Um, have you considered revisiting the potential of selling a portion of your renewables uh, to fund all of these, uh, noting too that you also turned off your drip um, last quarter? So maybe I'll start in, in, in Sandra, uh, you know, certainly, certainly follow up, you know, definitely when it comes to looking at new capital requirements, uh, I think as Sandra said, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting quite well right now uh, in terms of, in terms of our, our capital requirements. Uh, but, you know, all the time we look at, you know, turning over capital, you know, are there assets that, that we should be selling and, uh, and, you know, creating, you know, liquidity events and, and uh, utilizing those funds. So that's always on the table. Um, a lot of it is dependent on, you know, our outlook for growth and, you know, the deployment of that capital versus and realization of that capital versus, you know, what our other alternatives are, but, you know, that's always on the table. And that's always something that's uh, actively uh, actively discussed. Yeah, I don't have anything really to add to that at this point. When we're looking at funding our growth between internally generated cash flow and the strength of the balance sheet, we're really not in a position where 
we're, you know, looking at raising equity or, or uh, doing a type of a sell-down, you'll remember that um, of our renewable growth, a portion of that is the uh, U.S. solar. So uh, part of that funding will come through investment tax credits as well. So at this point, we're not uh, um, finding ourselves as having to look at that as an option. But as Brian mentioned, it, it, it's always on the table. Yeah, and, and I think I think one of the things maybe to to, to bear in mind, and, and that's where the magnitude of this the uh, you know the uh, tax credit information that will be coming out you know, hopefully in March, um, what would that that can have a very significant impact on the net capital cost of the 1.8 to 2 billion dollars, and then if you take into consideration you know partners on top of that. Um, you know, it, it's not as daunting as it as it as it looks from a headline perspective. That makes sense. Thank you very much. The next question comes from Patrick Kenny with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. Um, just with the Alberta budget coming out later today, Brian, can you just remind us what else you need to see? in terms of provincial government support, you know, on, on top of Enbridge being awarded the sequestration rights, of course, but just more from an economic perspective, um, what provincial clarity or policy milestones should we be watching out for? So when, uh, you know, certainly there can be surprises from, from, you know, from whether it be federal or provincial governments that, 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 create problems for us moving forward. We don't anticipate any and we're not thinking of any, but that's, that's, always, uh, that's always a possibility. But from what we see and, and what we kind of understand, um, you know, from a financial perspective, and, and, you know, a pure financial perspective, you know, we are anticipating that between the uh, support from the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, um, the uh, the tax credit, uh, the investment tax credit that, that we believe might be available to us. Uh, we don't think there's much more needed from a quote-unquote financial perspective. What is important, though, at this juncture and what, what we need to see is some de-risking of the carbon credit environment, you know, whether that be in the form of contract for differences, whether that be in the form of, of you know, other different kinds of in instruments that create some higher degree of certainty around that cash flow. And, you know, as, as I indicated, you know, it, it, it seems like the governments are very much aware of it. They understand. Um, and I think as, as, you know, the banking community also represents that's a that's a very, very significant and, and, and a bit of an extraordinary risk for um, for uh, the, the, the magnitude of the investments that are being made. So believe the governments are sympathetic. You know, what that translates into and whether it's at the federal provincial, uh, uh, from the federal perspective or from the provincial perspective, you know, we're talking to both governments about, you know, the need for something and, uh, <clears throat> and talked a little bit about you know some some mechanisms that that we think you know might work, and you know do believe it's in, in active discussion at, at least from a from a federal perspective. Uh, we don't see um, that it should come out in terms of regulation. Um, we have a bit of a challenge with anything. You know, if it's in regulation and you're hoping that it stays pat for 20 years. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, we'd actually be looking for something that would be contractual as opposed to regulatory to, to provide that you know extra degree of of comfort. So much like you know what was a, you know our insistence with the provincial Alberta provincial government in negotiating the off coal arrangements, um, weren't weren't satisfied with it being in regulation needed to be by contract. And we see the same the same sort of. Uh, approach uh, from the greater assurance from the uh, from uh, the carbon risk perspective okay great thanks for that that that's helpful um, maybe for Sandra the the 72% hedged position for this year you know in the high $60 range versus I guess forward price is still in the mid 90s 
is that relatively higher percentage um, of base load sold forward more of a function of being able to lock in your natural gas requirements below market or is it perhaps more reflective of a view that you know you think the forward curve doesn't um, reflect reality and that you know as we get into the peak summer months you would expect spot prices to, to uh, settle much lower it's sort of a combination of things. Firstly, when you're looking at that 72%, um, over 40%, uh, so 40, 40, over 40% in total of the 100% of base load are long duration contracts. So some of those are, are quite far out. And that was done intentionally when we uh, realized we were in a period of very high prices in 21 and 22. But with supply coming on in a couple of years, we expect those prices to come down. So given the amount of incremental uh, length that we have with the Genesee 1 and 2, it was prudent uh, in our perspective to take on those longer-term contracts and lock in that length. So when you're looking at uh, just the hedging for 2022-only contracts, we're only 32% hedged, and, and that's in the low $80 per megawatt hour range. So you have to appreciate that as we step into hedge positions, uh, over time, the uh, forward price has uh, sort of moved up to where it is now in, in the uh, high 90s. And, you know, so we, we continue to look at, at hedges of, of the book. But what's really driving that relatively higher uh, hedge position are the longer-term duration contracts that, that do have a lower price. So they would be contracted at a level that would be more representative of the long-term forwards versus the current year forwards. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, and last one for me, just curious if you're experiencing any inflationary pressures on your maintenance activities or if you've been able to you know, mitigate the risk around your sustaining CapEx guidance for the year. And then also maybe you could just dovetail in a quick comment on you know, how we should be thinking about your O&M in general just across your entire contracted fleet elsewhere outside of Alberta. Yeah, so what so, the, like, oh, go ahead, Brian. No, go ahead, Sandra. So I was going to say on the, on the maintenance side, um, our LTSAs are uh, quite insulated from the impacts of inflation. So we are seeing that uh, uh, we don't have a lot of risk from that perspective. So all in all, we see uh, a fair, fairly mitigated uh, exposure to, to inflation overall. I was going to add that that um, you know how we see you know the the, the maintenance uh, uh, operating maintenance costs line up for for this year and beyond is you know with a lot of the work that we've done last year and some of the work we're anticipating doing this year it actually positions us for a lower spend so you know we see that as as being positive and I think we went through that you know in in, in, in during our investor day. In terms of inflation, a lot of the activities associated with outages and um, and and, and uh, uh, just ongoing maintenance activity is labor related, and so you know it more is driven by you know what are the union contracts and uh, and also availability of labor um, as as we move forward in the various regions. So that's a very significant component of our costs and. We don't see that, uh, although rising, we don't see it um, uh, getting too too far out of control. And not like what we've seen on steel prices and other things that have you know gone up quite a bit. But of course, you know they're they're uh, coming down right now as as we speak. So um, you know do do not expect uh, inflation to have a significant impact on our costs going forward. Okay, that's great. Thank you. The next question comes from John Mould with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, you know, really just, I guess, one broad one on, on the carbon side. Uh, as we're going through some you know, fairly large policy reviews, I think, over the next few months, and just wondering what your current you know, base case assumptions are for Alberta specifically, on the tier review and how you expect or how you think that might unfold in the context of, of the federal backstop as it's currently constituted. And then how you're thinking about the, 
the clean electricity standard more broadly. Um, and I appreciate we, you know, we don't have that policy yet, but I think we've got the contours at least, um, including in, in uh, Ontario, you know, outside of, of the assets for Longenesis specifically, I guess, where you're looking at uh, significant carbon abatement. Can you, can you maybe just tackle those two uh, bigger picture topics? So I think from from an Alberta perspective, you know what what we see is um, you know the the Alberta government um, very much committed to continue with the tier process, i.e., having its own regime, and um, you know as it moves forward with with uh, negotiating those agreements with with the federal government, of course, need, needs to, to to be aware of and so on of, of the, the whatever changing. Federal policies there may be around around carbon and you know various standards. Um, we do believe that the Alberta uh, government uh, sees that you know the, the the current intensity you know the 0.37 um, is where it should be and um, would would endeavor to be maintaining that through to 2030. And again, we'll we'll see when it when it comes to discussions and negotiations, but. You know, we see, and it goes to an earlier question, we do see that the Alberta price for carbon will keep lockstep with what happens from a federal perspective. So that's one element of negotiation and, and commonality between the federal backstop and, and uh, what we would see in Alberta. The biggest issue, of course, is, you know, what happens in regards to, you know, the oil and gas industry. So um, from that perspective, um, not sure what's going to happen there, and, and again, that's where they'll be. We believe that the the, uh, the focus of discussions. And from a, an Ontario perspective, you know, in Ontario, you know, our assets uh, generally the the implications of, of carbon tend to be uh, borne by um, the ISO, who you know holds who is the counterparty on the contract. It's not. Perfect, but um, in terms of being, you know, perfectly covered. But you know, I, I think in all material respects, it's it's generally covered there. The interesting thing about an escalating carbon price is that depending on where your asset is in the queue and how efficient it is, uh, it, it generally drives less efficient uh, assets are dispatched less, and more efficient assets, of course, are more dispatched more. So. You know, what we see in Alberta and, and, and what we would expect in, in other jurisdictions and, and that as, you know, there may be, you know, escalating carbon prices, generally our assets are called on more um, as opposed to less. So, um, you know, we, we don't necessarily see escalating carbon prices as being negative uh, as we move forward. Okay, um, I will leave it there. Thanks very much for that detail. The next question comes from Andrew Kuski with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thanks, good morning. I, I think in your slide deck you had language around Ireland and stating an intent to aggressively intervene in the BCUC process. I, I guess is there just a bigger picture issue with the way that um, BC Hydro's behaved in relation to Ireland that you know, the bigger issue is really their PowerX's work marketing license. If, if there's not a functional market within British Columbia, doesn't that create a bigger problem? And so is it the question really, you ultimately probably wind up with some fair resolution of this? Um, you know, not really fully aware of, you know, all of BC Hydro's motivations and, you know, how much PowerX plays into it and PowerX considerations. Um, you know, right now they, they do have a definitive need for a greater security uh, on the island because of the work they're going to be doing uh, on the uh, on the transmission lines. And, and again, those trans the work they do is not actually going to increase the capacity. It's just going to be increasing the reliability. So again, not not sure if you know it's actually going to solve the island problems. You know, our our biggest challenge, I would say, has been that 
you know, what we have gone through, and, you know, if you look back at last, uh, the, the previous IRP and, and the, the one before that, there has tended to be a lot more information, a lot more disclosure around just the underlying data that, you know, transmission experts could look at and analyze and, and you know, either agree or disagree. What we've substantially gone on is the fact that, you know, we've been dispatched pretty regularly. Um, there's been no increase in capacity. There's an increase in demand on the on the on the uh, on the island. You know, everything points to uh, not only the historical need being there, but an enhanced need going forward. And it's that the lack of data, the lack of transparency, that has been a problem thus far. Now we expect to overcome that through the BCUC process, when you know through you know information requests and so on. We should be able to get at that data and and determine um, you know whether or not you know we think it's well bluntly right now we think they're planning they've got a degree of uh, brownouts on the island that that they believe is acceptable. Um, we don't see that there's any other logical answer to to that situation, but obviously they're they're not disclosing that you know publicly to any great degree. Okay, that's that's very helpful um, context on things. And and then the second question is really around, you know, historically your construction expertise has been you know quite favorable and you've managed to deliver a number of projects, you know, within you know, tight timelines and within budget, uh, in part because of the construction expertise. You know, how do you look at that as a competitive advantage going forward? And can you scale it if you wanted to deploy more capital into the market or feel you're in the right kind of spot right now for building new things so it depends it, it that all depends on the the new things that you're referring to you know when it when it comes to so for example with the repowering that's taking place now uh, and you know we don't talk about it a, a lot um, but you know for example you know where we are now on that project uh, in one year is typically where organizations are in two years you know, we compress the front end of that uh, project considerably and we're, you know, and we are, you know, meeting our milestones. And I think, you know, it, it, it creates that, that ability to, to move quite quickly, you know, through, uh, through construction. Um, and so, you know, that, that um, on, on a major project, that takes a lot of effort out of the organization, you know, with, with the repowering. If you're looking at a wind farm or, or a solar facility, um, we uh, do, you know, and continue to, to, to do things a bit differently than, than many others. And what we learn or what we developed with, with one uh, solar facility or one uh, wind facility, we're able to apply that just as part of the way we do things. So um, our ability to build a significant number of wind or solar facilities is definitely there. You know, we can greatly expand from a couple of a year to you know uh, to a handful to you know uh, again in in time you know much beyond that. So, like from a renewable perspective, um, you know, I, um, I'm I think we have great great uh, capacity to build you know at the same time a number of facilities. Thanks, Brian. That's very helpful. The next question comes from Mark Jarvie with CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks, everyone. Um, we're just coming back to the carbon capture storage uh, project. You talked about Team Infrastructure Bank, First Nations involvement, strategics. Is just wondering how, how low a percentage could you be? Is there a minimum that you'd want to be in terms of economic participation, or and at the same time, is there sort of a sweet spot in terms of a specific target you're looking for in terms of ownership? You know, I, I would say we would, you know, unless there's extraordinary circumstances, I think we'd want to retain, you know, at least 50% of the, um, of the project. So that's, I think that that would be kind of the, the, the line that we, we would start off looking at, at partners and, you know, out of that, of course, would, would come First Nations. But for example, if there was a 10% interest by the First Nations, maybe the other two partners are 45, you know, ourselves and somebody else is 45% each. 
you know, a lot will just depend on, on governance and, and other issues that, that drive that. But somewhere around 50% would probably be the sweet spot. So when you're, when you're saying 50%, when, are you thinking the Community Infrastructure Bank is providing sort of a loan, and therefore it's sort of the net X, the loan from Community Infrastructure Bank? Or how do we think of that part of the capital contribution? The, no, no, I'm I'm speaking more in terms of just you know if you look at what what uh, you know uh, ownership interest you know of, of capital powers would be in the order of you know somewhere in the zone of, of say fifty percent uh, in terms of the um, in terms of the Canadian Infrastructure Bank you know they have you know guidelines and direction and and you know what they would be you know, potentially willing to, to to support or fund um, which which. You know, would not be you know the entire uh, I'll call it debt check for the project, and of course any funding associated with First Nations would be would be coming out of other areas of the federal or, or provincial government. So um, there'd definitely be a need for public debt financing on the project. It may well be project financing uh, associated with it. Again, depending on partners and and approach. Uh, You'd probably see a combination of, of uh, Canadian infrastructure bank support plus um, more traditional debt. And then just coming back to the Enbridge hub, it seems like you still think that's going to go through, but but if for some reason it didn't, what, what's plan B then in terms of uh, that component? Um, you know the uh, the issue is finding you know the appropriate geological site. And for example, I, I I would say right now if if Enbridge decided for whatever strategic reason or whatever to to, to not move forward, and it was you know uh, and there was no technical reason uh, that was a a problem with the site, we'd just take it over. It's relatively small compared to. The CCS uh, uh, investment that we're looking at, so um, we just we just uh, take it over, and 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 either look for somebody, you know, one of the other you know pipeline organizations that would be happy to take it on, or or, or again, you know, uh, do it ourselves. If it was a technical reason, um, that technical reason being more geological. Um, there'd just be we'd look quickly for an additional uh, geological site that was relatively close at hand, and you know the Alberta geology is blessed with a, a lot of uh, potential pore space, so um, don't believe that that would be a, a necessarily a huge problem. Okay, and then one last question, just on the, on the gap hedges, you're highly hedged for your base load. If you did have something like an unplanned outage, like you saw at Genesee. What, what risk or how would you deal with that? Could you just use the gas at other sort of dispatchable facilities? Would you just resell the gas? Just any risks around being highly hedged on the gas side? Yeah, we, we would be able to sell the gas or re redeploy it. So very, very minimal risk there given the, the contract price that, that we have for uh, for those those contracts. And did you do that in the past year given the Genesee 2 outage? Um, we would have had at times there would have been some shape to it. So yeah, there would have been some some opportunity to uh, lay some of that off for sure. Yeah. And, and generally, do you net out positive on those? Correct. Or is there something? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then one. The next question comes from Naji Bedoun with IA Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, um, just a couple of questions, um, uh, starting with the Genesee CCS project. I mean, it seems like clearly that's the next phase of, of the evolution of capital power. I'm just wondering, you know, if that project doesn't move ahead or has 
if it has to be materially altered, what are some different options uh, that you're thinking about in terms of other capital allocation priorities? You touched a bit on M&A, but maybe a bit more color on that and, and uh, more details on organic growth would, uh, would be helpful. So as, as we look at that project, um, obviously, you know, if it moved forward, it would have a bit of an impact of, um, you know, limiting, you know, what else, you know, capital power could do. I mean, we still could, you know, have a significant growth in renewables and, you know, acquisitions and over that time period, but, but certainly, you know, would decrease the overall appetite. So, you know, what, what I'd say is that we would, um, continue to look at um, re- you know, growth in renewables. Um, we'd see you know potentially some additional you know natural gas acquisitions. Although you know although you know we're seeing a lot of activity now and and you know we expect a lot of activity next year. Um, we do expect that you know in time those opportunities and and when you think of them you know midlife natural gas assets with you know significant contracts associated with them, you know, those are going to become fewer and, and, and farther between. So, you know, don't anticipate, say, in the last part of this decade, you'd see a lot of activity on that front, you know, more so, you know, early part of this, uh, early part of this decade. So, um, would see a lot of the growth, if not in some years, all the growth coming from renewables. Okay, that's uh, very helpful. And and just maybe tied to your previous uh, comments on, you know, competitive edge with, with the Genesee repowerings, um, I suppose you're not really considering um, acquiring other thermal assets and applying the same experience and knowledge to transition them to more efficient or lower carbon uh, assets? You know, that's certainly something to, you know, think about, you know, in, in the future. And I would say, you know, a, a couple of years from now, you know, with, you know, with some success, you know, with, with, uh, with Genesee or at least moving, you know, well down the road, you know, that may be something to, to look at. And certainly in the United States, there's a growing recognition of the need for CCUS, um, so, you know, we'd see, you know, there may be some of those kinds of opportunities that might open up for us um, where, you know, we might, you know, apply expertise to a, to a, a, a relatively new natural gas facility and, uh, again, in the U.S. In, in Al- even in Alberta, when we look at it and we look at Genesee 3, you know, we would anticipate at some time it would make sense to, to potentially repower it and apply CCUS, particularly when the infrastructure is in place. So, you know, there are those 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 uh, kinds of opportunities that that you know may be out there. <clears throat> we, we at this point aren't seeing that as uh, again other than the Genesee three. We're not seeing that as something that's that's kind of on the radar screen, but it definitely has some potential in the future. Okay, that's it. Thank you. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Randy Ma for any closing remarks. Okay, if there are no more questions, we will conclude our conference call. Thank you for joining us today and for your interest in Capital Power. Have a good day, everyone. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.